Well, it's good to be with you. Thank you for the intro, Charles. And uh, yeah, welcome to King's. Great to see you here. And uh, I, I trust we're going to have a good time in the Word of uh, God together. Um, let me just pray. Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us. I pray that there are a number here that this Word would really impact them. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, how many of you have seen Apollo 13? I mean, Apollo 13 is just, you've got to watch Apollo 13. You do know if you come to this church, nearly every preach I do, I recommend a movie. But you do need to see Apollo 13. It is a true story. It is an amazing story. It's a story of three astronauts that are on their way to the moon, American astronauts. They were the third uh, trip that were going to go land on the moon. There was Apollo 11. And Apollo 12, and by the time Apollo 13 came along, it wasn't getting so much high profile because, gosh, the Americans, they landed on the moon twice. It's just the third time. So Apollo 13, but they're actually on their way to the moon, let's say about a third or halfway towards the moon, and then there's this massive explosion, and the famous saying, uh, which we all know is, Houston, we have a problem. Have you ever heard that? Houston, we have a problem. That comes from Apollo 13. It's a true story, this, okay? And... uh, I saw this movie for the first time while traveling across the Atlantic in a plane, which had lots of turbulence. Have you ever been in a plane? I mean, it was just fantastic. It brought the whole thing alive, okay? So you've got Apollo 13, I'm there, and like most guys, I'm the hero in the movie. You know, I'm just okay, so it's fantastic. And what they work out is that, oh man, there's no way they're going to land on the moon. Now, how are they going to get these guys back? So there's this moment in the movie when they get on a chalkboard and they literally draw and they say, what we're going to do is we're going to slingshot the capsule around the moon using the gravity of the moon and slingshot it back to the earth. That's how we're going to do it. But because they're going to need the guidance system to come in from re-entry, they haven't got enough power, they have to turn all the guidance systems off and... uh, So that's what happens. They turn all the electrics off. It's very cold. They're drifting through space. They go round the moon and they're coming back and you think they're going to make it. And then suddenly this nerdy mathematician comes on the screen and says, I've just worked out at the speed they're going, they're going to run out of oxygen before they get back. And so they contact them and they say, what you've got to do is you've got to put the rocket boosters on for 39 seconds to create enough speed to get you, they work that, to get you back while you've still got oxygen. And so you're sitting there, you're watching it, I'm in a plane, okay, and they've got no guidance system, and they go, well, how are we going to keep it on track? And they conclude the only way to do it is to keep the earth in the centre of a, 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 a triangle kind of shaped window in the capsule. So just think about this, you're there, and then someone goes, counts them down, hits the button, it goes, poof, off. And the, the capsule's jumping around like this, and they're trying to control it, knowing that if they get it wrong, this is the end of their lives, and two things will happen. Either they'll come in too steep into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up, or they'll miss the Earth completely and just drift off, or they'll skip off the top of the Earth's atmosphere, and look just like a, a stone on a pond when you kind of do the throat, yeah? And so that's it. And, of course, it's it's worth watching the movie because it's a true story. Dad tells a true story. And uh, it finishes well, yeah? Uh, But it's quite an amazing moment. And what I want to speak about today is that 
What can happen in your life, you can go through different moments in your life, and depending on how you respond will impact whether you crash and burn or whether you spin off in your trajectory. And you can apply this to any part of your, maybe your working life, your education, or if you have a sense of call, or any, any, any area of leadership or influence you have. How you handle the private and how you handle God's preparation tests have a massive impact on whether you just spin off or you crash and burn. Now, I've done this long enough now to see excellent young men and women full of vision and I'm going to change the world not handle the private tests and crash and burn or spin off. I've also seen uh, men and women of my age also crash and burn late. And so I want to uh, teach into that this morning from uh, Joseph's story. So let's... uh, uh, so it's going to be a slightly different message this morning. should be good. Okay. So Genesis 37, 2-7. One of the most familiar stories in the scripture. But, and let's just read it. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, who was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilphar, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a, a multicolored ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more, and he said to them, listen to this dream I've had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field, and then suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine, and you bowed down to it. Okay? And you know, if you know the story, you know that the, 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 the brothers, like, they're thinking, this arrogant little so-and-so, something like that. It's not exactly how the Hebrew goes, but you get the drift, okay? And they say, right, we're going to take him out. In fact, we're going to kill him. Such was their hatred. And then one of the brothers shouts, they say, oh, let's not have blood on our hands. And so they conclude they'll just save him into, sell him into slavery. And so he gets sold into slavery, and he ends up in Potiphar's household. Now, Potiphar is an Egyptian official. We're now he's in slavery in the context of the kind of superpower of the day, the Egyptians. And he's in Potiphar's household, and he does well. He starts to manage the whole household. And then Potiphar's wife comes up and goes, Oh, I like you. Young man, young man. She comes up, young man. Yeah. Come to bed with me. Yeah. I mean, it's not subtle. She's pursuing this guy. So come to bed. Now, Joseph does well under this test. He resists that temptation. Okay? And, uh, but there's a consequence. You know, sometimes you will come under temptation, a test of temptation, and if you follow God's way, there will be a consequence. And you're faced with a choice. You know, if you, you know, the world is looking to trip you up, and the enemy is looking to trip you up. But if you stand firm... It might be with a consequence. In this situation, there's a big consequence to Joseph. In the end, she feels so rejected, yeah, she decides to basically accuse him, and her husband comes in and he gets thrown in prison. But it says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. So in prison, he does well. In fact, what happens, he gets to become, he starts, gets promoted within the prison to start running the prison. And he, he gets known that he was a young, arrogant man. He's got a prophetic gift. But he's got the ability to also to interpret dreams. And the uh, cupbearer and the chief baker who fall out with uh, um, Pharaoh get stuck in the prison and they have dreams. And uh, he interprets their dreams. 
One is a good dream. One is not such a good dream. Well, they're both good dreams. It's the interpretation. So he says, one, you're going to be released. The other, you're going to be dead in three days. So if you've come to church wanting a prophetic word today, you might just want to reconsider that for a moment. Yeah, okay? So, um, and he interprets the dream, and the cartbearer says, oh, fantastic. And, and Joseph says, well, look, don't forget me down here in prison. You're being released. And the cartbearer says, yeah, sure, 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 sure. And then he is left in prison, the scripture says, for two years. And he goes through the delay test. When you think you're going to get out of prison, but you don't, you are delayed. Let's pick it up in Genesis 41. And when two years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And he was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing up on a single stalk. And after them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. And the thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy full ears. And then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. And in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. And so the cupbearer at that moment remembers Joseph and gets him up, and he interprets the dream, and he says, look, there's going to be seven years of, like, feast and great harvest, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. And the both different dreams say the same thing. And uh, Pharaoh is so impressed, he makes Joseph prime minister, and he leads his palace. It says this at the end of uh, Genesis 41, 40. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Amazing. Now, what I want to teach today, these two principles uh, through this, and how God trains us. Here they are. Upon one is upon the successful completion of a ministry task, the disciple or leader is usually given a bigger task. And secondly, every disciple whom God uses in any capacity must be first prepared to function in that capacity. And we see that in the life of Joseph. He starts young man, arrogant, full of himself, but with gifts, okay, and basically doesn't handle it well. And then he he, he runs a household uh, and does well through the temptation test. Then he runs the prison, and then there's a delay, and ultimately he has a new sphere of influence now leading as prime minister of this kind of global uh, empire. And uh, uh, you can see in Joseph's life, and you can see the tests he went through. And actually, you can see it throughout Scripture. So I could have taught the principle through the life of David. So you know the story of David. David is, uh, is chosen. He's going to be the king. Uh, and the prophet comes to town. Samuel turns up, goes to Jesse's house, and says, where's your son? Have you got another son? And David's out tending the sheep. And they go and get him. He comes in. He says, he's the one. And they anoint him. He doesn't become king for a number of years, but the kind of call comes on him. Now, very often, if you have a sense of call and purpose of something, it's one thing to have it. It's another thing to see it through. Normally, there's some period of development, preparation, or delay. And uh, I love the passage about David, but it says he was tending the sheep. He gets the prophet, comes to town, big prophetic word over his life. And it says he goes back. And what does he do? He tends sheep. 
Now, when I was a young guy, I know that's, for some of you, you have to really zone back in time, but let's say 30 plus years ago, when I was in my early 20s, I was fortunate to be invited to sit in on an eldership team of a church of about 300. I was the youngest guy. I mean, I was like Joseph. I mean, I was full of myself. I mean, really. I mean, you think I've got an ego now? Let me know. I mean, honestly. I used to sit in that meeting, I'd tell him what. I had to tell the pastor, you don't know what you're doing. And if we'd ever discussing something, I'd say more than any of the other elders. I mean, I was, I was a, a young, arrogant young man, okay? And uh, a prophet came to town, a guy called Gerald Coates. Some of you may have heard that name. He came to town, and he pulled me out in a meeting. In fact, it was a meeting of the elders, and he got me to stand in the middle. And he brought this massive prophecy over my life. This is what you do. You do this and this and all grand words. And I'm there, and this is what's going on in my heart. Okay. I hope they're all listening to this great prophetic word that's coming over. I mean, you know, Lord, me and you, we know what's going on here. Let these mighty men, these mighty elders, hear the prophet. Okay. Now, fortunate, these were wise yeah, they had a few grey hairs. The pastor, Peter Ledger, had been leading the church for 25 years. And my father uh, was another one of uh, the elders. And my dad took me aside afterwards, the prophecy. And of course, I'm like, come on. Hey, come on. Here it is, Steve Tippett. Steve Tippett Ministries is coming. Yeah? And uh, he, said, he said, look, I think, I think don't lose the prophecy, Steve. He said, his exact words, he said, put it on the shelf and... Uh, just carry on with what you're doing. Great advice. Great advice. Sometimes you, you meet people and they're just so full of what they're going to do and you just wish they would do what they've been asked to do. Tend some sheep. And so if you want to have a growing influence, whether it's in your workplace, in your school, uh, in your church, do you know what you do? Be faithful with small things. Tend some sheep. Um. This is the heart of the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2 says, Entrust to reliable men or women. So now there's some track record, or Luke 16, 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So if you want much, if you want a lot of money, be faithful with a small bit of money. Yeah? If you want to have lots of influence, be really faithful with what you are given. Don't live in the future in the sense of, Oh, just, I've met people, they're going to lead churches of hundreds. I said, what are you doing now? Oh, well, I'm not doing anything. I can't lead a group. I'm called to lead a church. I go, oh. Tend some sheep. The principle applies whatever your context. So look, I hope I've established upon the successful completion of a ministry task, the disciple or leader is usually given a bigger task. So you have to be fruitful and faithful in what you're doing. And every disciple whom God uses in any capacity must first be prepared to function in that capacity. Uh, Frank Damasio, uh, in The Making of the Leader, expresses it more fully when he says, every leader whom God uses in any capacity must first be prepared to function in that capacity. Proper preparation is the only assurance of a leader functioning effectively for God. Many disciples or leaders greatly desire to function effectively. I expect all of you do in your workplace, in your marriage, in your home, with your kids, Uh, in the way you handle your finances, how you serve God. But far few are willing to pay the price of being ready for the task. That's a a 
That's a good quote, that one. So like, for those of you in your 20s, you millennialists, okay, there's some research done on those in the 20s is that they, they really are a generation that want to make an impact. They really want to influence. And they struggle when they've been in a company for two years and they haven't been promoted yet. Okay, it's just like, well, gosh, I'm just serving behind the scenes. I'm, recognize me. I want to make a difference. Yeah? <laughs> well, that's a good aspiration. But remember, you tend to make most of your difference over the age of 40. Between 20 and 40, in God, it's all about preparation. Most people really bear most of their 40 to 60. It's like summer. You're in spring where you get those initial shoots that show real potential. But God is more interested in what's happening in the private rather than your growing influence, whether it be in a workplace or a church even. And God wants to prepare you, and he wants to prepare you because when responsibility comes, you want to be ready. I'd never, this is another one of my prayers, please, Lord, never promote me beyond my preparation. Oh, gosh. Why? Because I'm full of pride and I don't want to be exposed. Part of the reason. Another part of the reason is, I don't want to, I want to do well. I want to serve God. I want to be faithful. So it's not a wrong, total wrong aspiration. Um, aspiration. Uh, so are you willing to go through the preparation? The act of preparation is to make ready for special purpose, to make suitable, to fit, to attack, to train, to equip, to furnish. The full meaning of the verb to prepare is to provide properly for, to foresee problems, to predispose a certain action, to rehearse ahead of time, to train for a specific task, to educate with special knowledge, to set the groundwork and foundation of to cultivate for fruitful reproduction, to mellow and mature, to arm or to fit with necessary weapons of warfare. Preparation. Be faithful in small and embrace the preparation the season you're going through. And uh, what I want to do is just out of these uh, uh, Joseph's stories, I just want to talk about three examples of the type of preparation tests that you go through. And if you handle them well, you'll grow and be more fruitful and maybe have more influence. If you don't, you're in danger of crashing and burning or spinning off. So the first one is what I call the promotion test or the delay test. Um, Very often, very common in people who are younger. Hey, look at me. What a gift. What a gift to the church I am. Yeah. Recognize me. Recognize me. Let me do more. <laughs> yeah. I've never, ever seen any of that around at all. I just see it in my own life when I was that age. But, uh, but actually, the promotion test, it keeps coming around. And it's more challenging the older you get. So you tend to get promoted in work and things like It's quick at the beginning... And then the more senior, there are less roles, and it takes longer. Yeah? And you can also, when you get into your 40s and 50s, you start experiencing kind of like plateau. Oh, is this it? And so you kind of, kind of grab too much, or you push. Or you think you've done enough preparation that it's about time it all opened up for you. What I've discovered in my life is that it doesn't work like that. These tests keep coming around, and sometimes the older you are, the harder it is. And if any of you know what I've walked through in the family of churches over the last seven, six, six or seven years, this is, this is pretty, pretty close to home. I've had a, like a life verse that has shaped my life and how I respond to this particular test, which I've been through numerous times. 
It's this, it's from 1 Peter 5, speaking to elders and young men. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. That he may lift you up. And this is a strange thing in the kind of Christian kingdom world, is if you grab it, if you try and grab it, guess what will happen? It's a bit like the use of authority. Someone explained the use of authority like soap to me once. The more you use it, the less you have. Yeah? And so there's this whole thing that if you grab for something, it's far more likely that you just... <laughs> well, if you, if you die to it and say, actually, God, you know, keep me humble. And if it's your will, he will raise you up in due time. Now, I learned this lesson first time around when I was about 25. I was in the church back in Bedford. I was sitting in this elders meeting. And the pastor, Peter Ledger, a very experienced and established pastor, said, I think we should make Stephen elder. And I'm, of course, sitting in the room at last. Here I'm recognized. I've got the E badge. Yeah, I could put E on my pajamas or something like that. You know, that's what it's all about, to be an elder, have E on my pajamas. But then I've really made it in God, because I'm an elder. Yeah. So I said, well, good, good suggestion, pastor, I agree. Well, I didn't say that in the meeting. I just felt that in here. Yeah. Okay. And then um, what happened is my name went forward to the church, and guess what happened? They all went, yes, what a brilliant guy. He should be an elder. No, they didn't. In fact, the leadership, the extended leadership of the church said things like, he's a bit young. And uh, someone came up to me and said, you're not even married. Husband or one wife should be an elder. I think that's a wrong interpretation of the passage, but that's what was her. And, and uh, it became a dilemma. I wasn't married. I, was, I tell you, I was dating her. What a girl was I dating. I mean, she was stunning. That's a whole other story. I married her. She's sitting on the front row. Okay, uh, but... Um, Just throw that one for you guys. That's a free one there. And uh, uh, where was I? Uh, All right, I was becoming an elder. Do you remember, Charles? I was talking about becoming an elder. I was going to be the E on my pajamas. And uh, I ended up in an elders meeting where the pastor went round the elders and said, what do you think we should do, guys? Because what happened, it became an issue of leadership in the church. And they went round, all the elders, all the elders went, no, you should stand down, Steve. You should stand down, Steve. I'm waiting for, come on, we're with you, Steve, we're with you. You're an elder. And went round. And they all said no, apart from the senior pastor who said, I still think we should go ahead. And I thought, oh, good old Peter. What a godly man he is. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, I didn't say that. I just sort of, and then what I realized was going on afterwards is the issue had become an issue of leadership. There's actually nothing to do with me. And at that point, it was challenging the eldership's leadership of the church because of, I didn't know that was going on then. But it was clearly it wasn't happy. So in the end, what I decided to do, and I have to be honest with you, emotionally I was struggling, but I concluded the right thing to do was to withdraw from being an elder. And so I wrote to the church. I remember, dear Peter, after much prayer and reflection, I've concluded for the sake of unity that the best thing to do is for me to withdraw from going forward as an elder. And, uh, uh, but of course, I will continue to serve as I have been. Yours, Steve Timmons. Inside, I'm going, recognize me. But, you know, it's all very nice. Okay. And actually what Peter did, I didn't know what he was going to do, he read it out to the church. You know what happened then? He read it out to the church. Guess who was the first person that came out to me? 
person came out and said, now you have read, now you've written that letter, I wonder, maybe you should be an elder after all. So that has an important leadership principle. Don't grab it. Just serve. The promotion test. Um, One commentator says, one measure of true spiritual maturity is the length of time a person can wait between achieving a ministry and being recognized for it. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking, in you there's something like, recognize me, recognize me, recognize me. Yeah, Just take a check. Take a check. Yeah. If you, are, if you serve and you are fruitful, you won't, you won't need to be recognized. It will just happen. God will do it. Uh, and it's a really key uh, uh, a leadership lesson. The second one is the I've got today is, oh, look at the time, Charles. Look at the time. I'm sure you got me up late, so I'm going to carry on. So um, is the temptation test. Now, what happens here is, you know, a woman pursues this young guy. Whew. Now, that's totally appropriate if you're married, by the way. Wives, you're allowed to pursue your husband, okay? In fact, I encourage it in the marriage seminars that we teach. But that's not the context here. Here's a young guy, and he's trying to do a, a good job, and he's, uh, he's actually going through the sexuality test. Uh, now, I, on this one, I can't, I'd like to have numerous illustrations when I was pursued, but, you know, it just hasn't happened. Uh, so... Uh, the, the, the most challenging situation I have was in business. I left school at 16, and for the first 10 years, between 16 and 26, I worked on the shop floor in a printing industry. It was a pretty earthy context. And then I worked in sales and marketing, and the culture of the place was pretty edgy. And uh, on one occasion, I'm sitting at a meal table, and this girl walks up to me with my colleague, work colleague. She leans over. I think she's speaking to me, and she kisses me and says, you've got nice blue eyes. Okay. That's as close as I've got to that type of temptation. I still think to this day it was my mates set me up as the Christian. Yeah? Yeah? And, um, but I did face this test that when they all went down the strip club or the lap dancing club now is, do I go or not? I, I didn't go, so you know. Um, <laughs> you're so glad that that illustration went in that direction, didn't you? So I didn't go. I didn't go. I, I, I used to end up it was quite difficult. I used to end up in, in, in a hotel room eating a meal. And the challenge I faced there was I was eating the meal on my own. And, of course, there was pornography. In those days, that was one of the easiest ways to, to kind of, um, sort of have access to it. So that was my challenge. Nowadays, it's, 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 you've literally got it on your phone, haven't you? You've got to win that battle. Joseph did. You've got to win it. And remember, a third of pornography is watched by women now. It's not just a male issue. I still don't get that. But anyway, that's what the statistics tell us. Okay? Remember, if you're a parent here, the first time that kids, the average age of exposure to hardcore pornography is 11. Okay? So you want to kind of work on some boundaries. Shocking. Um, so you've got, to, you've got to win this battle. It's like the temptation. It's the character test. I once heard Terry Virgo say to me, he was the founding father of uh, New Frontiers. I was in a small group of about 20 leaders who was teaching us, and he said, do you know what the enemy's tactic is? The enemy's tactic is to allow you to have an Achilles heel that's hidden that you feel you're managing and it's okay. 
And what the enemy's going to do, he's not going to bring you, he's not going to crash and burn you in your 20s or your 30s. He's going to wait until you really have got influence. Yeah? And he's uh, going to wait until you're into your 40s and 50s where the impact of your failure is going to have more damage. And I felt the fear of God on me. And I hope some of you do as well. Win the character test. Win it, because you might have the gifts that, you know, look at me, shock and awe gifts, you know, all over the place. But if you've got areas where you haven't proved God, yeah, it could catch up with you. Uh, Joseph did well on this, and he lived with the consequences of it. And then lastly, the, the conflict test today. Um, the conflict test is, is like a relational test. It's when you have difference of opinion on the team that you're a part of. And you, you can see that. You've experienced that in the workplace. Sometimes yourself, you think, oh, I overreacted. Or you see other people overreacting, storming out, and not handling the kind of the emotional intelligence of working through the difficulty. Now, I, I learn a lot through conflict. You do. Conflict is a powerful tool in the hand of God and can be used to teach a, a disciple or leader lessons they can learn in no other way. But it's bad enough to go through conflict. Uh, it's even worse to go through conflict and not learn from it. Uh, so the church I was in, um, it didn't end well for me at that church. I became full-time youth pastor. And after being there on staff for about four years, the senior pastor had an emotional breakdown. And he was off work for nine months. He was about 60. He came back. And all the elders and the apostolic, the oversight of the church said to him, look, Peter, for your health and for the sake of the church, why didn't you stop leading? Stay on the team and we'll let someone like me lead. Yeah? And he said, no, I feel called to lead this church. And so we concluded, one, that we shouldn't be involved in overthrowing him because that would have split a church. And so what we did is we, as best we could, graciously leave. Now, graciously leave for me meant I was going to lose my job. We were going to move uh, away from Bedford, which is my hometown. And, uh, but God's sovereign. You see that in the life of Joseph, don't you? I mean, he went from you know, wild prophetic gift to, to um, Potiphar's household to prison to prime minister. And it's the hand of God who was upon him. I'm grateful now. I wasn't at the time. I was grateful for the conflict I was grateful because it propelled me out of a town like Bedford into this city here. And uh, what I have seen the blessing of God in leading this church for the last 20 years maybe might never have happened because of uh, what happens with conflict. Sometimes God uh, uses it. So God can use conflict, uh, but he can teach you things through it. And I learned a lot about the importance of unity and to work hard on self-awareness and team dynamics. Uh, and if you run a business or you're working with a senior leadership team in a school or something like that, you know you've got to somehow retain the relational harmony while giving feedback and moving forward uh, because people perform better in those type of contexts. Um, Joseph didn't do so well on this. So he started with falling out with his brothers to the point they want to kill him. Um, now look, there are loads of other tests that you go through. Um, 
But as I close, quickly. What happens to your emotions when you go through a test? A delay test, a temptation test, a conflict test. I tell you what happens is your emotions go through a whole whole flow of different feelings. So you can feel hurt, you can feel anger, you can feel frustration, you can feel isolation, you can feel resentment, you can feel rejection, you can feel misunderstood, you can feel lonely, you can feel bitter. Okay, That's really important that you don't stay there. Because if you do, what will happen? You'll either crash and burn, or you'll overreact, or you'll withdraw, and your trajectory will go off. And so what happens is through the test, you have to learn how to process the emotions. Yeah, You have to learn from the experience. And in that, you grow as a person. Because God ultimately is interested in the person you're becoming rather than what you do. Do you hear that? He is more interested in the person you're becoming on how, or compared to how successful you are. The strange thing is, is more often than not, really successful people have learned through the, the rhythm, the pain, and the challenges of life. And they have grown in their capacity, their emotional capacity, just their character, so that when opportunity comes, they can, they can, they can carry the day. I've never wanted to do something that I have... Uh, uh, being promoted beyond my preparation. Uh, and uh, the key thing is to process the emotion when you go through a challenge and not get shipwrecked through it. Now, as I'm speaking, and I'll close with this. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I remember looking back. There was that thing, oh, maybe, you know, I learned a lot through. That was really painful at the time. And so you're thinking, oh, yeah, okay, that gives me a narrative or something. Some of you are looking back and you think, Oh, yeah, I remember I got so burnt there, I've never recovered from it. And whenever I experience something, it goes through that filter. So some of you might be here from another church, and you've left, and you're really miffed with a pastor because something happened, and it's like, because you've invested so much in the church, you're feeling it really deeply. And then what happens? You come in here, and you think, oh, it's great, they're really friendly. And then in two years' time, I do something which is not as... as you know, not intentional, but or someone does something, and you think, oh, they're the same here as well, and it's rooting back into unresolved pain. So you must deal with it. Yeah? Um, some of you are here thinking, man, I have crashed and burned. Some of you are here, and you, you, you aspire to this, but you've spun off. Well, there's hope for you, because you can... Part of the purpose of this message is to get understanding in what God is trying to do. And with this, I'll finish. The problem with these preparations tests, if you don't loan them, do you know what will happen? God will take you around and around and around again. So if you're always grabbing, I want influence. The more you grab, the longer you wait. Tend some sheep. If you don't learn how to relate to people, then you'll keep, you know, you know so look in before you look out. Why is it wherever I work, people are difficult? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. yeah? And when you go through conflict, learn from it. Don't get trapped by the pain. Process it. You, you tend to process pain through forgiveness. That is the key to it. Okay. And part of that is sometimes owning your own mistakes and coming to God. So Joseph, uh, a few lessons uh, to learn from him. I trust that has served us well. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you. You have great purposes for each of us. We all have a call. Uh, it's different. It comes with different measure, different timings. Uh, but Lord, we all want to make a contribution. And uh, Lord, we know that to be fruitful, we need to be prepared. We know there's a principle of life. You tend to reap what you sow. And so if you're doing exams, you have to study hard. If you're running a business, you have to learn how to build team and manage spreadsheets and a whole range of things. We all have them. And we can all apply it to our life. And what we do want to do is be fruitful and faithful. So I ask for every person in this room, and particularly for a handful here, that this message just came at the right time. And I pray you would grow us and that we become more like you through the different seasons and tests you take us through. And all God's people said, Amen.